This episode is brought to you by SoRare. Stay tuned for more information on them later in the episode. What's up, everybody? I'm Scott Melker, and this is the Wolf of All Streets podcast, where twice a week I talk to your favorite personalities in the worlds of Bitcoin, finance, trading, art, music, sports, and politics, basically anyone with a good story to tell. So today is a first for the Wolf of All Streets podcast. We have a fan favorite returning for his third appearance on the show. Ryan Selkis is one of the most highly regarded entrepreneurs, investors, and writers in the crypto space. As the founder of Masari, a top research news metrics and live data provider for crypto, Ryan has been behind the longest running crypto daily brief in the industry. The last time Ryan came on the show, he shared with our listeners his insight and predictions into what would likely happen this year. Now I'm looking forward to an update and his thoughts on what is likely coming in the future. Ryan Selkis, it's a pleasure to have you back for a third time. Thank you very much. And like we were just talking about before we came on camera, I did not realize that I was in a league of my own, at least for this particular Right now, you are in an elite league of your own. We even did one, I said, before we had video. So that that must have been very old before we are doing these video at all. So first, listen, punks, rocks, apes, penguins. We're obviously seeing a major NFT craze here. And the big news yesterday was that Visa announced that they have bought a crypto punk. I'm curious what you make of that decision. Well, I think the Visa marketing play in particular was brilliant because the amount of money that they spent to be ahead of MasterCard to get the entire internet talking about them and ultimately you know to do so with an asset that may very well appreciate in value because of the story around it, it is a pretty uh, lucrative combination now they have so much money and and it's part of their marketing budget i'm sure they're going to hold on to that as an artifact uh, just of, of the history of the company but the, the ROI on that alone, and we see this with, with crypto experiments more broadly, I think um, any newcomer to the space that executes a good entry point as a marketing ploy um, ends up finding a, a pretty absurd ROI on that investment because everybody likes a newcomer, everybody likes a convert uh, within the community. And as long as it's not completely ham-handed, then uh, it's generally rewarded uh, with uh, with a, a good groundswell of uh, of enthusiasm if it's on point and you know it doesn't you know kind of reek of the the Steve Buscemi uh, how do you do fellow kids type of vibe that, uh, that that some corporates do but I thought they nailed it and and you know good for them yeah as long as they don't then announce that they're not going to accept Bitcoin for their cars or something similar right yeah you get the the upside move yeah, like the Tesla it, move and then as long as they stay the course it will be positive. So what do you it make of, ways. yeah, what, what do you make of the craze right now in general? Do you see it as something that's bubbling? Do you see that it has legs? Do you think that this is the very early days of something much bigger? With NFTs in particular? Yeah, with NFTs, the market problem. especially in, I'm talking about specifically with NFTs, but even more specifically, the cartoon NFTs, pixelated art, the very simplistic side of it. Honestly, I have no idea as an investor, I'm focused more on infrastructure companies and I tend to uh, invest in, in companies that I think there might be some strategic value for Masari long-term, just given how broad uh, our you know, information engine is and, and how many different data sources we ingest. So um, I have bet on picks and shovels companies personally that I think will do well if, if the market continues to heat up and, and you know, accelerate and, and become a long-term trend, which I think it will be. Um, whether any individual project, um, Digital Rock, uh, Penguin, uh, or, or, or any other uh, 
type of, uh, of ape or, or you know, JPEG mammal. Um, I don't really have a specific bet or thesis on those as collectibles, but I do think in general, um, NFTs are, you know, fit that category of things that look like toys, but are going to be really impactful um, as part of the, the financialization of everything in a good way. And so, you know, I think uh, NFTs and, and certainly the, the most recent incarnation, it kind of, it combines, you know, user incentives and alignment, community elements, social elements, and game-like elements that um, it's a pretty formidable uh, combination. And it's something I think most people within crypto should be excited about because it brings in more uh, new retail entrants. The goal is not necessarily to win every single new entrant to the market um, as a, a wholesale you know, crusader and, and, and kind of religious believer in, in crypto and its ethos on day one. But what we see every single cycle is anytime that there's a new wave that attracts new entrants, the tide goes out, many of them defect or lose interest, but then there's a new core that's an order of magnitude larger than the one that came before it. That's kind of hook, line and sinker, you know, interested in crypto for life or, or for their careers. So that's how we kind of get these waves of talent entering the space as well and kind of building the foundation for all of these types of marketplaces, NFTs just being the most recent incarnation. So I think um, I'm excited about it. I also have a day job, so I don't spend a whole lot of time <laughs> surfing, uh, surfing these these platforms and, and trying to you know get a leg up on the digital art side because I just don't understand it. But I know that I don't understand it, uh, but for the fact that I think it's going to be you know big and interesting and um, a new type of primitive that's an uh, important part of the crypto stack. I've taken the same approach. And when I say, listen, I think it's amazing. I just don't get it. I get a resounding, okay, boomer. So I'm going to give you an okay, boomer. Uh, yeah. on that response as well, which I think is That's fine. Yeah, I, I, absolutely fine. It's interesting. It's sort of a two steps forward, one step back approach with every bubble, as, as you just mentioned. There was a lot of debate about Doge and meme coins in the last run. And at the time, I think a lot of people perceived it as a negative because it was making people take crypto less seriously. But I assume that's a decent corollary to what's happening here with this, right? We'll have a bubble, some people will lose money, but then the ones who stay will be passionate and join us forever. Yeah, and you know, I think as bubbles go, this one I hope is gonna be less dangerous because it, it, it will, if you think about 2017 and the ICO boom, um, a lot of people were investing a lot of money with the expectation that teams were actually gonna deliver value and their, their tokens were going to go up and, and they were basically buying you know, interests in, in these kind of new novel financial internet stocks almost by another name. Um, that's how they were trading. That's how the markets were structured. That, that was just, you know, it was kind of the implicit assumption. And it's one of the reasons um, that, that we founded Masari to basically um, build from first principles, like an Edgar-like repository of information on all these projects and made big claims in 2017 and we're going to have to come to market and then gradually decentralize. So I think there was a lot of danger there from like a headline risk and, and kind of consumer protection risk. With NFTs, you know, I, I know it's going to happen to some people and it's unfortunate, but if you spend $150,000 on a, a, a piece of digital art, that's a picture of a penguin or a squiggly line and you lose your house because of it, that's on you. <laughs> Like, I, I don't I don't think that the regulators are, are going to turn around with a straight face and try to pin that on entrepreneurs or, or you know, the, the crypto industry at large um, as being like bad for consumers. No, that is a situation that looks more like pogs or beanie babies or, or other kind of historical collectibles fads. Um, 
And that's not to say that all of these are going to go to zero or, or, or you know, all of these are going to correct sharply, although I'm sure many will. It's, uh, it's more just a reflection that uh, I think the, there's, there's less risk from a headline and an optic standpoint baked into this because it's so absurd to think that people um, might ultimately you know, be able to run to the SEC because my top shot card went down in value or <laughs> like the, 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 right. these are clearly not security. So even if the market is crazy, um, it's, um, it's something that I think excites people about crypto, but it's not you know, cryptocurrencies and crypto protocols. So you're, you're not kind of running into the same um, regulatory and, and legal issues and, and having to worry about Big Brother stopping out you know, the innovation in that side of the house. That makes a lot of sense because then you have to go after every person who's ever bought a piece of art that they love that would appreciate or every person who's ever bought a rare car that they couldn't resell. It's exactly. just, it's, it's the same as uh, any other speculative purchase. My dad always said, don't ever buy art for the value, buy it because you love it because you're going to end up looking at it forever because nobody's ever going to buy it. <laughs> it's kind yes. of probably similar advice uh, with NFTs. So you, you brought up regulators and we've obviously seen a major shift in sort of perception and seriousness uh, from regulators, largely because of an infrastructure bill that had nothing to do with crypto, right? And it's something that you've talked about quite a bit. I'm curious, after seeing the whole process, at least in the Senate, before we move to the House, if you're viewing it as more of a bullish event, or if you still think there's a lot of risk from the poor language used in the infrastructure bill, do you think it will be fixed? Where do you stand? I think a lot of this is in our control as a community. Certainly, it's a net negative that the language was passed as is, but I think how it was passed and, and how the process played out at the 11th hour, cover to cover, was a good catalyzing event for the rest of the industry to take seriously the fact that we are no longer in the minor leagues anymore. And it's unreasonable to expect that global regulators and authorities are just going to ignore crypto because it, it's, it's too small to matter. But that ship has sailed. It's big enough to matter. It's big enough to uh, create a... a $28 billion CBO score um, in their estimate of, of what you know enhanced tax compliance could mean for, for actually paying for some of this new infrastructure bill. Um, whether you agree with that or not, they scored it that way. And so now it's on you know, a politician's radar, uh, you know, both domestically and, and, and abroad. I think the, the, the right approach historically has been, don't tread on me. This is new technology. Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't regulate things that you can't understand, um, this, that, and the other thing. And um, that whole game, I think, changed and, and you know, frankly needs to change on an ongoing basis um, because whether they intended to or not, they, they fired the first shot, the broker language, and the fact that it was passed as is, even though it's technically infeasible and, and it, its worst interpretations could push all innovation offshore, cripple the U.S. crypto industry, you know, the industry more broadly, I think, would be you know, significantly negatively impacted. So... Um, now that that genie is out of the bottle, there's no choice but to mobilize as a community. And when you talk about mobilization efforts, it looks a little bit different when it's Coin Center and the Blockchain Association educating legislators and, and regulators on why not to regulate new technology that they don't understand, or, or at least do so in a thoughtful way that, that kind of properly covers these from, from a technical standpoint. Um, but now that we're kind of past that phase, you're going to actually need to fight a little bit more. And uh, I'm not sure that those organizations themselves are able to serve as both the advocates, the friendlies that are, that are educating these policymakers, and then the more aggressive grassroots 
type of, of lobbying organization or, or advocacy group that I think is going to emerge in, in the next couple of quarters that starts scoring these politicians and their staffs and um, creates electoral consequences for those that are on the wrong side of the issue. Um, I think that's part of the process. I think that's that's part of this being an emerging industry. And uh, if you know there's any silver lining to what happened the last couple of weeks, it's that it's woken everybody in crypto up to the opportunity and the threat posed uh, by, by DC. Um, it has catalyzed them in a way that's very bipartisan, both on the Hill and within the crypto community, which I think is, is very kind of politically diverse. And, um, and so when you're on the right side of the issue and you're also operating amidst a backdrop where the institutions cannot do anything right, right now and are, are probably at all time lows in terms of you know, state capacity and trust, that the you know that the citizens have in, in their elected leaders, it's a perfect storm and backdrop to actually mount not just a, a defense of crypto, but you know an offensive of why this is a better path forward, and why um, our, our positions need to be you know aggressively uh, asserted, and um, and you know we need to you know basically start coming up with lists of demands versus always being on our back heel. And, um, and and just trying to you know dodge blows and and, and parry and 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 be patient. So I, I think um, that's like that's new territory, and this is literally three week old territory. I think for for everybody. Um, and so now the the question is, uh, all right, there there's a revolution brewing. How do you actually get all the misfits together and uh, and and align on core values and align on what we want? Um, the the outcome to be here because if um, the one extreme outcome is every man for him or herself and, and every community for themselves, uh, then we're probably going to lose um, a lot more ground than than if there's you know kind of a, a, a set of you know core values and principles that, that people are generally aligning on, or at least the ninety percent uh, or ninety nine percent of of more you know kind of reasonable people within crypto. So you know, you're always going to have the fringe folks that are like, you know, fuck the government and, um, you know, expressing you know, interest to opt out or not play games or, or, or this, that and the other thing. And I, I definitely understand that frustration. And I think, you know, over over, you know, a few beers and, and you know, amongst friends, that's that's certainly the, the uh, maybe common ranting of, of folks that have been in the industry for a while. But if you're actually looking to kind of win over the, the swing voters and, and, and get some results here, um, there is no alternative but to play the game. Um, that's been forced upon us because there's nowhere to run to. Um, and, and, and this is going to happen whether you like it or not. The question is, will your crypto activity be black market activity or will, will be, we be able to kind of carve out areas that uh, we can operate and, and experiment and, and keep this momentum that we've had for the last decade? Just to temporarily galvanize even the most tribalistic of communities, which was very encouraging to see the entire crypto space come together. And my gut instinct or least I would like to believe that now that it's going to the house, there's going to be some opportunistic Congress persons, people, Congress people who will see this now as an issue to gain voters as opposed to uh, flip being on the other side of that. So I'm hopeful that the language will be very quickly fixed and that there will actually become more pro crypto politicians because they see this incredible base that stopped legislation for three or four days without a lobby without a pack. I mean, don't you think that now is the time that we're going to start to see a lot more support come out as a result of the way that played out? 
I think people have to be prepared for this to actually go into effect as law. Um, and, and the important thing here with the House is not necessarily to win, although obviously we want to win and, and, and you want this to get reconciled and the language to get fixed. But um, there are procedural reasons, from what I understand, that, that that might be unlikely, just given how close the vote is, how narrowly controlled the House is, and the fact that um, they're going to try to ram through the spending bill. Um, and the way to do that might be to avoid, you know, an extended reconciliation process and and um, and back and forth that that's only going to further hurt, um, you know, this current administration who's taken a beating the last couple of weeks with Afghanistan and and you know a number of other items. Um, so now, at worst case, um, is the time to take names um, and not even necessarily take names of you're either voting against this bill. Or you know that's essentially like a de declaration of war on crypto, and, and we're going to come after you, because I don't think that's going to be very effective nor reasonable to take that approach in the context of a three and a half trillion dollar spending package and you know one trillion dollar spending bill uh, for for infrastructure in particular, which is what this kind of subsection was included in, um, because any reasonable politician that doesn't know anything about crypto is going to say, I'm sure that there are items in this mammoth. 1700 page or, or however long this uh, page bill this is, uh, I'm sure there are issues, but you know we're we're basically trying to push through infrastructure for the good of the American economy and for for everybody. So, you know, uh, your your objections are noted. Here's what we meant, and you know this will be you know figured out during rulemaking. That that's probably going to be the out that a lot of the politicians give themselves. And there's one extreme where you say that's not good enough, veto the whole thing, or like you're anti crypto, which I think is unreasonable. And then there's another, which is, okay, can you say that into the microphone, please? Yeah. And 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 let's get some of these folks on record because I think um, getting any type of legislation passed is uh, incredibly challenging, particularly given how how kind of polarized uh, both sides are. So if you can get enough folks, especially on 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 the Democrat side, um, where they're going to be you know have a vested interest in making sure that this this overall spending bill gets passed. And you can give them an out, but you can also get them on the record to state what their crypto position is and, and uh, express interest in actually fixing this through subsequent act. Um, that is that's putting us in a better long-term position, both from like evidence of, of all of these lawmakers that passed this bill had this in mind. This was the intention and kind of the letter of what they had written versus like the spirit of what they had written. And so you can start fighting some of these out in court if needed, but also kind of lay the groundwork for, for corrective legislation down the line if it comes to that. Um, and I think that's probably the direction that we're heading. So it's going to be a long, you know, 18 months. But ultimately, I think this is something that, you know, we are never going to have more leverage than we do today for a few different reasons. One, we've got the midterms coming up and um, no one is, is going to want to be on the wrong side of this issue, seeing how vocal the community is and, and, and how popular this issue is with the under 40 crowd in particular. Um, two, you want to be fighting battles uh, during a bull market versus a bear market, <laughs> because then they can just slap the shit out of us on consumer protection and fraud. And, and you know, uh, is this actually a good thing? Look at how many people have been ruined from this. The, you know, the SEC you know, needs dominion over, over all this. We can't have unregulated finance. Um, so if you're going to kind of wage a, a political fight, it has to be in an upward market. Um, and I think, um, you know, just generally speaking, there's um, a lot of the right narratives are on our side. And, and again, this because this is a bipartisan, you know, quasi-political movement, 
you can um, you can actually make even some of the more extreme conservatives or extreme liberals um, that might be you know at risk for for you know primaries or the moderates that that desperately need swing voters to um, to rally around this as as you know an issue that is is going to help shore up their support for the next election. That's going to be true in the House and in the Senate, but especially in the House. So I I think that's kind of the battle ahead. There are different ways to kind of approach that, but um, uh, we're, we're, we're just getting started in terms of, you know, mobilizing on the offensive versus the defensive. When I saw that they had written a 2,700 page bill, I thought that's about the same length as Selkis's end of the year uh, crypto review. Exactly. And, uh, <laughs> I was like, he could have knocked this thing out. Of it, exactly. Exactly. So, one thing that's interesting, though, is we caught them off guard. Right. No, nobody expected mm-hmm. this bill to be frozen because of this one line. And so the community came together and 40,000 calls to senators and offices and letters. The question is, if we don't catch them off guard again, is it even conceivable that crypto can go head to head with banks and fintech and all these huge lobbies? Or do we need another way? Well, you know, lobbies only go so far. At the end of the day, you need the support of the voters. And, and and the populace. And, you know, the banks have all the money in the world. You know, the big tech companies have all the money in the world. And they were slow to mobilize because they just thought that they had kind of voters and, and users on their side. So I think um, the, the goal here needs to be um, to mobilize as many, you know, voters and, and, and humans as possible on the right side of the issue, because we're not going to turn overnight into the uh, American Bankers Association that has like you know two hundred million dollars of annual spend versus two million for the Blockchain Association. This is not going to happen. So, um, and that's fine. I don't think we necessarily need to, to play that game because we are in an environment where both sides are growing increasingly populist. Well, this is a populist issue, but it tends to be like a, a third way um, versus you know kind of the extreme right which is, you know, the, the hardcore, you know, like Trump anti-swamp, you know, type of sentiment. And then the extreme left, which is, you know, the AOC uh, squad contingent, um, which you know, is, is, you know, outspoken about uh, being, you know, democratic socialist. So I think um, this middle path is, is something that I think is, is going to resonate with a lot of people. And because it's going to rally so many individual voters versus just their their pocketbooks and like the super PAC dollars that you get from the bankers association, um, that's going to that's going to have an outsized impact. So it's not just about the money. It's not just about the voters. It's not just about being on the right side of this bipartisan issue and um, being, you know, having the support on record for all the senators that had voted this in because there was a compromise amendment, which I think is, is, is a really important kind of fact here. I think you know you take the combination of those three things, and it becomes uh, potentially you know, explosively dangerous to be on the wrong side of this. Um, and no one, the lobbies, the, the the Hill staffers, the politicians themselves, e- even the regulators, who are ultimately at the mercy of you know the the you know elected office holders um, that are going to have to run for re-election at some point and, and kind of answer uh, and be accountable for for how their agencies have performed. I don't think anyone's really uh, clear on on how the crypto community is is going to evolve um, now that it's descending on DC, but they know that it's a major risk um, potentially if if they're you know openly hostile if not you know not supportive. Right. So that summarizes the the legislative side of it, but does obviously still the regulators. And I think when Gary Gensler was appointed, 
a lot of people, the knee-jerk reaction was this guy gets it, taught blockchain at MIT, he's a huge fan. You posted a thread recently about Gary Gensler that made me think potentially otherwise. What are your thoughts on him, his role, and if he's the right man for the job, at least to benefit our space? Goldman Gary. Yeah. Um, look, I, I think um, it, it's it's important to have, you know, I, I knew that calling Goldman Gary was going to you know, put up good numbers on Twitter and get it, get oxygen to the thread. And the important kind of meat of what um, we were talking about, which is, you know, a, a few things. Um, this is someone that, you know, good for him, $120 million net worth from, you know, decades long successful career at Goldman Sachs that, you know, is now swooping in and, and trying to protect the little guy and making his, you know, whole shtick about um, consumer protection and, um, and making sure that, uh, that the markets are fair and, and investors have a fair shake. And, you know, it, it's one of those things where it's, it's another, you know, kind of second career politician in this case that um, is saying all the right things, but uh, only because, you know, he's, he's got this paternalistic attitude that, you know, he knows best and the SEC know, knows best and, and they're kind of here to save the day. And the question is, here to save the day from what? Because uh, crypto has been the, the best performing asset class of our generation. Um, that's not just Bitcoin. That's not just Ethereum. That's many of these other emerging assets as well. They're at all-time highs or close to all-time highs, almost across the board, at least for the ones that have real usage. And so protects consumers from what exactly? From uh, the public markets where most of the gains in, in companies that finally go public after decades um, are you know, reaped by the venture capitalists that were able to kind of bid up the private rounds you know, for, for extended periods of time, well beyond what we used to have in terms of companies going public. Um, you know, if, if you just look at um, uh, Gensler's reaction to crypto and, and his uh, kind of sweeping interest and oversight of both the crypto exchanges, DeFi, and his belief that everything, you know, is a security, I, I think it's a, a dangerous combination. And, and, you know, do you want to give someone that much authority over the crypto? And this has been the problem with the SEC for the past you know, four or five years. It's not about consumer protection. It's about the fact that they can't keep up. They're not equipped to keep up. Um, they're probably be incapable of, of actually stamping out some of these tokens. To do so would actually be counterproductive from a financial inclusion standpoint, but financial inclusion is not one of the SEC's mandates. Um, so you know, that kind of gets uh, brushed by the wayside. And, and they just look at the negatives of protecting investors from harm instead of the negatives from actively prohibiting certain types of investors from accessing you know, investments and in other financial instruments, which is the financial inclusion piece that I think we have a really good leg to stand on. So the, um, the Goldman Gary meme, uh, I think works because it's, it's, you know, it kind of shows how out of touch they are, not just, you know, kind of with the reality of the current crypto investor and, and how well crypto investors have done, tinkerers have done, uh, in this industry, but um, it also, you know, with uh, with kind of some blanket statements, would suggest that user-owned networks are, you know, net negative or not going to be welcome in the U.S., um, which I think is the exact wrong approach that we need. And you know, uh, again, uh, if Hillary Clinton had won, uh, Gensler very likely could have emerged. Uh, he was the CFO of her campaign. He could have emerged four years earlier, hypothetically, as the uh, chairman of the SEC. And back then, he had said pretty definitively that uh, Ethereum looked like a security. So would we have this trillion-dollar 
smart contract market, DeFi market, and, and many American entrepreneurs that are building on that stack, if Genser had been in office um, in, in his you know, particular share four years earlier, uh, had Hillary won? It's, I think, a fair question, and, and people need to understand that context before just handing over the reins to another unelected leader of, uh, of, of one of the most important regulators with respect to crypto. Do you love sports collectibles or fantasy sports as much as I do? So Rare is blending this together to create an entirely new gaming experience powered by its community. So Rare cards are officially licensed NFTs from over 160 clubs, including Real Madrid, Paris Saint-Germain, and Liverpool, and all built on Ethereum. You truly own your collectibles. They are productive gaming assets that will generate rewards if you're a good fantasy player like me. Join Sora and connect with your favorite teams, live the game with passion, and earn weekly prizes. You can do all of this at the Wolf of All Streets.link slash so rare. Crypto is a unique asset class, really not comparable to the existing ones. Do you think that we need a regulator or a regulatory authority that is specific to crypto and outside of the pur purview of the SEC or CFTC or one of these others? Or at least a, no, a task force specifically for crypto who understands it and is willing to make reasonable regulation? The thing is, I think a lot of this is already covered. And, you know, the, the, the way to uh, ultimately get this done and and figure out a way to you know, regulate different you know, parts of the crypto ecosystem is not to try to regulate the protocols and developers themselves, but actually look at, you know, who are the service providers and where do they fit? Right. Uh, I think it's a it's a perfectly valid question to uh, try to get a sense for whether, you know, Coinbase, Kraken, you know, the, the big you know, U.S. exchanges or the big U.S. custodians, uh, which agencies oversight do they fall under? Or is it an, an entirely new task force or, or, or kind of you know, agency of, of, of the government that is going to oversee those crypto providers uh, in, in general? I think that that's fine. And honestly, I don't even know if um, some of those entities are, are actively pushing back on that because you know, historically, um, good regulation and, and, and kind of collaborative regulation and self-regulation, even from industry, tends to help you know, stimulate additional growth in those end markets because it, it, gives, you know, uh, it gives a more kind of trustworthy brand and, and veneer to those markets and, and ultimately makes it accessible to an entire new class of investors, which is other regulated financial institutions or, or asset managers. Uh, that otherwise are not going to take the risk if, if it's still treated as like a wild west asset. So I, I don't know that anyone's really even pushing back on that. I think it's the sweeping um, mandate and, and, and powers that they're trying to bestow upon themselves um, with respect to uh, DeFi, developer activity, staking, validation, you know, the things that were, were omitted. And we know that they were omitted intentionally because of how uh, aggressively um, Yellen's treasury was, was actually uh, pushing for a competing amendment that um, explicitly carved out uh, some, of the, some of that DeFi language. So this is not just like an oversight in drafting, because um, that would have that may have been the case, or, or, or you know we may have been able to give them the benefit of the doubt until we saw the second amendment that was kind of counter to the Toomey Wyden amendment uh, that was first proposed. That second amendment kind of proved the point that no treasury really does want full oversight and control over DeFi within U.S. borders for any number of listed reasons, but um, the wording is very intentional. So we should not give them the benefit of the doubt when it comes to rulemaking because they already tipped their hand. Um, and I think that's that's where um, things get a little bit concerning and um, you're always kind of on high alert for not acting like a chicken little 
uh, and saying the sky is falling when, oh, really? It was just because they didn't fully understand it and the broker language will be clarified after the fact. Well, that's not how this works because if they wanted to carve out that language initially, they would have. And clearly they would have because we had an amendment and then a counter amendment, which still carved it out. Sure. I mean, talk about giving them the benefit of the doubt. It's very hard to give the SEC the benefit of the doubt in general when you look at accreditation laws or all the things that they do to protect the little guy when in reality, we know that they're just preventing the little guy from having financial opportunity. So why would we think that this will be any different? I mean, why should you have to have a million dollar net worth to be able to invest in your friend's company? That doesn't make sense. Right. And so if you extrapolate that to all of the potential pitfalls in crypto, it's pretty endless. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Now, this isn't all on the SEC, right? You know, they are uh, regulators are going to regulate. Uh, so if they believe that they have this authority and, and they do based on you know, some precedents, uh, you know, like the Howey test, then, um, then they're, they're, they're going to try to do their job. And, and you know, they've got a hammer. Everything looks like a nail. That, that's that's human nature and, and it's to be expected. Um, I'm sure that there are you know, plenty of great people at the SEC that think that they're they're doing uh, a stand-up job for you know, the, the American people and, and the folks that are going to be most susceptible to scams and fraud and, and this, that, and the other thing. And you know, I think you know, crypto as a community needs to also take that seriously and um, and you know, try to direct people to you know, information sources uh, that help them not get ahead of themselves. Um, you know, that's why we started Masari. I think they need to. Um, we need to you know, adopt best practices that are not you know, explicitly gamifying some of these new emerging assets and their protocols to be get-rich-quick schemes. Um, and you know, to a certain extent, that's unavoidable, but um, there's always going to be some of that. I, I think you know, uh, very oftentimes salvation lies within, uh, and we can kind of proactively head some of these criticisms uh, off and, 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 at, and maintain the, the moral high ground. But um, until we've done that, you know, at scale and won some of these you know, battles either in court or, you know, through the polls or, you know, with just good rulemaking that actually is balanced and, and is technically feasible, um, it's going to be a little bit more contentious. And, um, and so, you know, hopefully you can uh, de-escalate uh, openly hostile situations, especially when we, we have the lo lower hand in, uh, in, in terms of power dynamics, um, but also, you know, flex a little bit of muscle wherever we can, um, which I think is unique to this cycle. In cycles past, I'd say we'd more or less be at their mercy, but there's so much money, so much kind of user support um, that the, the, the dynamics are a little bit different this time around. Interesting to talk about gamifying these assets because we're seeing that in legacy markets as well. I mean, Robinhood is a perfect example of that same behavior, watching Dave Portnoy day trade on live Twitter streams. That's the general trend. It is not something I believe you can hold against crypto specifically. No, it, it's, uh, I agree with you. I, you know, I don't want to point fingers. I think, um, uh, I think, you know, David Day Trader Global, um, the best part about what Portnoy does is it's, in my mind, it's almost impossible to go after him because what he does is, is entertainment and That's satire. True. But what he does is also exactly what happens every single day on Bloomberg and CNBC. It's literally no different. The only difference is, you know, Dave's joking. Yeah. And everybody else on those other channels are, are, are serious. And the most irresponsible advice they give every day is to execute a trade because more often than not, 
you're um, you're, you're going to lose to the market and the index. You're, you're kind of net uh, windfall for actually uh, having spending time in the market and investing is probably going to be negative the more you watch some of the talking heads. Um, with with uh, with Portnoy, at least you might be able to follow the memetics of the market and um, and come out net ahead because you're in front of the uh, the next GameStop uh, or, or or the next AMC. We were talking about Gensler before, and one of the big stories has obviously been the theoretical approval of an ETF. I think a lot of people view that as the catalyst for the next big wall of money into crypto. Gensler sort of tipped his hat and said he would consider a Bitcoin futures ETF, and we just now are seeing one launch in Europe. Do you think that that is the direction that an ETF will go first? And do you think that a Bitcoin futures ETF is enough? Do you think that that's a good substitute for a Bitcoin ETF and that that will allow that wall of money to enter? Honestly, I have no idea. You know, part of the reason that I don't care is because I've been hearing about this and talking about this since 2014. Um, you know, not only indirectly, but like directly because, you know, uh, I mean, I, I was there, right, uh, when, when Grayscale was two employees at, at Digital Currency Group, right? So um, like th this is this is a very long conversation where uh, the SEC has historically shown no interest in moving quickly and I don't really expect that will change. So whether it's, you know, six months, 12 months, never, uh, it, it's almost becoming irrelevant because you have institutional solutions now um, for, for custody. And eventually these large investors if they can't access these assets in the public markets through an ETF, they're going to find a way to buy spot through some regulated custodian. And, and you know, maybe this is going to impact like 40 act funds. Maybe they're going to be the last ones to kind of enter the market because of lack of ETF. But there are still other you know, ways to kind of get that synthetic exposure. It's not an ETF, but it's still a uh, um, you know, an available like public publicly traded security, whether you're talking about, you know, uh, one of the ARC funds or MicroStrategy or, or, or Grayscale, you know, trusts or Bitwise trusts. Um, there are now options and, and there's more every day. So uh, it, to me, it's more of a formality than anything else. And, and I don't really think about it because it, it, it could still be a long time off. And there are bigger, bigger battles in the here and now that I think, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're thinking about and, and, you know, have to get ahead of. You mentioned Grayscale being two employees. Last time we spoke, I believe the Grayscale premium was still 15%. And that was sort of the big institutional trade was that cash and carry trade taking advantage of that premium. Obviously now, I believe as we're recording, it's about a 15 or 16% discount. And I think it would seem that Grayscale is sort of pinning their hopes to some degree on the ETF so they can convert that trust into an ETF and, and move forward that way. What are your thoughts on the present discount? Do you think that that will evaporate? And then the next question, I guess, after that is, how are institutions making money? You know, how are these traders the the uh, making money to hand over these yields to their customers if that premium doesn't exist? I think that's a it's a great question. I'm not sure um, how exposed some of the you know, private companies are to um, to this trade at this point. I think a lot of that kind of cycled out. Um, in uh, in Q1 and, and and I kind of feel like that was largely due risk. Um, I'm sure it hit some of the lenders that were relying on this trade and and you know some of the other uh, companies that were relying on this a little bit of like corporate treasury alchemy to um, to to make money on the back end. But um, I don't I don't know 
where the the, the premium or, or discount will settle. Um, I think you know eventually, if um, GBTC does get converted into an ETF, uh, or there's some redemption mechanism, then obviously it goes back to par, less whatever kind of the annual fees were for um, you know on, on the product itself, which I believe is is you know something like two percent. So. Um, that, that, that'll play out over time one way or the other, but, um, again, that's, uh, as more of a function of, you know, the SEC won't allow them to actually convert to an ETF, then the assets are, are basically stuck there forever because there's also no redemption program in place. Is that discount a good trade? You're getting it at a 16% discount right now. Uh, I'd leave that up to, you know, individuals, uh, you know, but again, I mean, if, if you look at, uh, Historically, where you know closed end funds trade, uh, you 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 should see something. I think that's going to be a discount. I don't. I think fifteen percent is probably on the high end. It's certainly on the high end um, in the last you know so far this year. I think the the, the worst it's gotten is about twenty percent. Um, so it is kind of trending towards that cyclical uh, bottom, or at least that we've seen so far. And, and uh, I I would be surprised if it goes much further south than that. But at the end of the day, you're buying GBTC because you believe in Bitcoin and its performance versus, you know, will you be able to close that 15 point gap? That's absolutely true. Where do you think Ethereum's role is now in institutional adoption? We hear a lot of anecdotal stories that they're looking at it, but we're yet to obviously see a Tesla or MicroStrategy level buy of Ethereum. Although Coinbase now with 500 million going in, of their treasury going into assets, I have a feeling will be uh, weighted at least partially to Ethereum. Do you think that Ethereum will become popular with institutions and that that's a, a true narrative? I think it will. And I think there's a half-life to new crypto assets. So yeah, the, the, the first asset that almost all new buyers are, are going to accumulate for their treasury or, or as part of an investment strategy is, is probably going to be Bitcoin. And then you know, Ether is going to be number two. And, and the way that I think about it is you know, digital gold versus you know, uh, uh, token interest in the financial internet, because Ethereum has real transaction volumes, real applications that, that, that are running on top of it. And um, this is a, a co-opted example from Arthur Hayes, who I, I think hit the nail on the head with a post earlier this year. You know, he compared M0 and the FANGs market cap. They're about $6 trillion each. So if you think about Bitcoin as digital gold and, and kind of hitting that M0 um, addressable market, and then you think about Ethereum as financial internet hitting that FANGS market cap um, at scale, then you know, could you see a situation where both Bitcoin and Ether get to 6 trillion? Um, I think the answer is yes. And, and for me, that's also the most entertaining outcome because you'll have Bitcoin and Ethereum maximalists at each other's throat and arguing in <laughs> perpetuity um, over basically a false contract and, and a false debate because uh, it's it's two completely different things that happen to be the same size. So that would that would that would make me uh, immeasurably happy if they just kind of traded in the forty to sixty percent band at scale uh, with each other and, uh, and and neither one actually ever broke out. Yeah, better than pay per view. And if they both go to six trillion or something equivalent to one another, that makes Ethereum the much better trade from here, right? Yeah, it 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 does. Uh, but uh, risk adjusted, you know, I'll, pe people have to come up with their own uh, risk adjusted strategy. Certainly, uh, it's uh, higher upside, but also might be lower uh, lower downside with uh, with Bitcoin. 
Right. The narrative is always the flipping of market cap or of price. And to me, those are almost the two least relevant metrics, right? I mean, even on Coinbase, we saw more trading volume on Ethereum last quarter than on Bitcoin. And one could argue, obviously, with transaction volume or any other number of metrics that Ethereum is already more popular than Bitcoin, right? Well, uh, in, in you know, many, many respects, I think that's true. But again, I, I think people every single cycle underestimate Bitcoin's staying power and how uh, resilient it is as a global wealth and value transfer system. Um, because it has kind of withstood the test of time and, um, and proof of work works. It, you, you might not like that it's dirty, uh, but so far it, it works and it has worked and, and you know, I think it will continue to work. One of the only things that I think needs to be de-risked uh, in the coming years uh, for Bitcoin is um, how will the security of the system look once seniorage drops below some kind of arbitrary threshold, whether it's kind of 1% or, or 50 basis points, or you know, what is the annual um, inflationary reward that's actually securing the, the, the entire system? Because at some point, um, it does become dangerously low uh, relative to the value that's being secured in the network. So that, I think that's the one thing to consider, but it's, it's still a few years out. So we're talking about hypotheticals and in the, in the meantime, you know, Ethereum and all the other major blockchains have their issues as well. Yeah, I mean, miners need to make money for mining. Um, I yes. asked Whit Gibbs of, from Compass Mining the similar question. Well, what happens when the last Bitcoin is mined? It's one of the famous, uh, obviously, quagmires. His position was that the transaction fees will cover it. Do, do you believe that? Do you believe that miners will still be incentivized to mine when there's no more Bitcoin left? We'll see. <laughs> Fair answer. Fair answer. And speaking, you know, obviously Ethereum still on proof of work is making the transition in theory eventually to proof of stake. Do you see any potential pitfalls with that move for them that could be debilitating to Ethereum or they could, you know, sort of take some of the shine off of that trade or investment? I'm tempted to give the same pithy answer of, of we'll see, but uh, I think there's still execution risk in uh, completing that migration. And there are a lot of other proof of work chains that are starting to process different types of transactions. So um, I don't think that Ethereum is, is kind of the, uh, the, the definitive winner in settling uh, decentralized finance transactions or, or, or settling uh, any type of, of value transfers, whether it's NFTs, um, currencies, you know, uh, other kind of new emerging applications, you know, distributed computing, you know, things like that. It, it, it's still, I think, too early to, to peg them as like the winner. But um, in reality, uh, I, I think, you know, we're going to learn just how good uh, proof of stake is for, for an at scale uh, set of security assumptions, number one. And you know, we're going to see how, uh, whether Ethereum's community has staying power as, as like the 80% dominant market share winner, or if some of that demand starts to ultimately you know, peel off and, and, and go more application specific. So like Flow uh, and their blockchain is a good example, kind of custom fed for NFTs. Solana, um, another good example. There, there's, there's, you know, a number of um, other platforms that are processing transactions for, you know, specific use cases that could ultimately siphon off some of that demand. And the reality is that, you know, all these systems are going to be interoperable. So it's no longer, uh, I think maximalism is dying 
uh, a, a slow, much deserved death uh, across the board. I think maximalism for Bitcoin kind of got us to this point because without that religious fervor, you don't basically build the the, the monetary base to the scale. Um, I think with Ethereum, that kind of radical like community orientation was critical in getting people to think about, you know, could you decentralize markets and kind of build you know, social contracts um, into a, 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 a technical system that people would trust and, and, and really start to um, rely on as the foundational infrastructure for, for their own you know, companies or decentralized organizations. I think you know, without Ethereum maximalism, that also probably doesn't happen, but I think that's starting to dissipate uh, at exactly the time that we needed to, and, and and more of these networks are starting to look like, you know, maybe decentralized companies, but they're they're they still have very similar designs, and um, and have to kind of go to market and compete um, more like companies than um, than you know new churches, which is a net positive, and and at the same time it probably keeps Bitcoin and Ethereum pretty firmly entrenched. So the, the notion of an Ethereum killer is something that everybody always discussed, but now. I agree with you. I think that each of these blockchains will find their niche. They'll all be successful. And then interoperability will basically be the future, making them all work together, which is really exciting. Mm -hmm. And But that said, we're seeing absolute booms in these other layer ones that you kind of talked about, Avalanche, Solana, as we're talking, they're all going completely nuts as far as coin price and adoption. Do any of these specifically excite you or do you just kind of look at all of them as a basket and see which one will win how do you approach it? I rely on our analysts for that. Uh, so every, everything that I know about the ins and outs of these other you know, competitive platforms, I know from Wilson on our team. Everything I know about DeFi is from you know, Watkins. Everything I know about NFTs and, and kind of Web3 assets is from Mason. So uh, I, would, I would direct people to them and their research uh, if, uh, if they want to check out Masari. So what are you personally most excited about in the coming months and years now that we've sort of you know, a lot of these little aspects are starting to mature. We had a DeFi bubble, it came back. We had an NFT bubble, it came back. Is there something that you're specifically looking at that's getting you really pumped for the coming months and years? Yeah, I think community organization and, and, and doubt infrastructure is uh, one of the next major areas of development. And, and, you know, we're seeing a lot of enthusiasm. We're building uh, a lot of product there as well because just, you know, governance information tools um, is uh, is kind of part and parcel to, to one of our one of the core features of our enterprise product, and uh, and I think if you if you zoom out a little bit and you think about the future of work being decentralized and really centering around protocols and marketplaces versus companies, uh, you're really talking about wholesale changes in in the kind of structure of uh, the theory of the firm, right? And the way to build those out and, and scale these protocols, it will not be to have proxy votes every single time you want to unlock $100,000 of treasury to an individual contributor, right? So you need to kind of build in delegation frameworks and like committee frameworks and, and then performance monitoring and, and, and all of that, the company level, but now you have to think about it as a decentralized organization without the typical like hierarchical system um, that's just, you know, there's a dictator on the top and then his or her lieutenants and then their lieutenants and then, you know, kind of the worker bees. I think um, the way that you can basically replicate that management infrastructure and, and those hierarchies has to be through like 100x improvement in information flows and availability. Because um, 
you're not going to get people like it's already difficult to get people to vote. They, they need decision support tools to basically like click, sign, approve and know that what they're doing. It's not just spraying and praying capital for folks that are going to be contributing or, or creating like major misalignment issues or, or um, you know, just generally, you know, piss poorly managing these these protocols in their communities. I think, um, you know, good information, you know, good governance tooling is going to be a, a big part of solving that and helping, you know, decentralized contributors scale and, and you know, uh, get more people in this economy that never work for a company again. I think that'll be, that'll look obvious and, and be the norm in 10 to 15 years. But we're like, you're talking about beginning of this year, maybe there was like a dozen people talking about this, working on this full-time, like in a professional capacity. Now it's probably... 50 to 100. Um, and, uh, and I think, you know, that's going to continue to skyrocket. The, you know, kind of case study that I think people are going to point to and, and, and that uh, a lot of ideas are going to be born from is this flip side proposal that just went in front of the Uniswap uh, Grants Committee. Um, it was interesting for, for, for you know, a whole host of reasons, but basically um, the proposal was ultimately pulled to provide, you know, analytics platform and then kind of different, you know, data analyst bounties on behalf of the Uniswap community for basically an allocation of uni tokens. Um, it was voted down at the kind of last minute because there was a groundswell of opposition to it. I think the opposition was around a centralized company being both the provider of services and the distributor of, of tokens to other kind of subcontractors within that system. I think I actually agree with that structure and I think that's the right way to do it. But I, I think at the end of the day, the issue was not that Flipside was going to make some money and the analysts were going to make some money and they were kind of serving as both the middleman and, and one of the primary actors. I think the issue was a lot of people kind of felt that it went through without any anybody debating it uh, and, and without kind of stress testing, like the numbers involved, like whether this was a good thing, whether it sets bad precedent. And so the result of that, I think, is going to be more, you know, kind of proactive um, discussion around how are these uh, centralized entities managed? Um, how are treasury spents? Uh, how do you know companies versus service providers versus individuals uh, you know organize themselves? And um, that there's going to be you know multiple billion dollar businesses built um, solving those problems in the years to come because we know that these decentralized marketplaces and, and DAOs are going to be the future of how you know user owned networks are, are ultimately governed and scaled and, and compete with their centralized alternatives. Love it. Great answer. So where can everybody follow you after this and check out everything Masari is doing? Sure. I'm, uh, I'm on Twitter at 2BitIdiots. Uh, Masari is at Masari Crypto, M-E-S-S-A-R-I Crypto. And we've got our mainnet conference coming up. Are you coming? You should. I, I Mainnet.events. I would. I, yeah, yeah, I saw right. you tweeting Done. about it, actually. So uh, check that out. Uh, September September 20th through 22nd, mainnet.events. We've got uh, 2,000 attendees, uh, 150 plus speakers, 100 projects represented. Uh, it's going to be the event of the fall, given that I think DEF CON is going to be moved again. So uh, yeah, it will be yes. the, the best and largest crypto event of the fall. And I can say that um, unless you know, DEF CON somehow pulls off an event in Columbia in two months, which I don't think is going to happen. So I don't think that's going to happen. New York in just a few weeks. Awesome. Well, I think now that I've had you three times, I'm going to change my Twitter name to 3BitIdiot and one-up you. Yeah, there you go. Well, <laughs> go for it. I'm never changing my handle. I'm never changing my avatar. Never, ever, ever. So thank you, man, for doing this. I appreciate it for a third time. Always great insight. And uh, we'll get you scheduled for the fourth in the coming future. Awesome, man. Always a pleasure. Thank Thanks for having me. See ya. Thanks.